Smarter Than Us podcast, Asheville's premier soccer podcast. Guys, welcome back to another episode of You're Smarter Than Us. Guys, I'm very excited. Been wanting to do this interview for a while. Today, I've got with me Stephen Bailey. Stephen comes to us. Uh, he has actually recently moved to Illinois, but um, before that, he was involved, I guess, on the fan side of the Atlanta Silverbacks. And guys, if you have not gone out of your way to check out his uh, Twitter account and everything he's doing. It's called Non-League America. We're going to talk about a documentary he put out not too long ago that really opened my eyes to something that I already knew was going on up north, but I had no idea what was actually going on. How you doing today, sir? Good. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so one of the first things I want to go ahead and tackle is you were recently in Minnesota, weren't you? Yes, yes. I drove the Non-League America Mobile up to uh, the NPSL annual owners meeting. And it's funny because I, when I tweeted out a picture of the truck saying I was just doing a, a pre-road trip inspection or whatever, I immediately got an email from NPSL like, you know, you can't come into the meetings. You know that uh, these meetings are closed only to to investor owners. Like, you you, um, you know, I can't guarantee, you know, what, 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 what is your purpose to come into the meeting? All like all nervous because, you know, they got <laughs> so much heavy talk going on at these NPSL meetings. But I, I really came to purpose of my attending was to network with the individual club owners and, you know, spread the non-league America gospel and uh, kind of make sure that everybody introduced myself to different owners and open up opportunities, you know, for non-league America. Um, and I was able to do that. I didn't feel like I missed anything by not being inside the meetings. One thing that I want to clear up about non-league America is that we're an official NPSL media partner. We're official UPSL media partner, but I don't really consider the platform to be media in the reporting on sports sense of the, of the term. I think we're much more of a content creation house um, and we create many documentaries about clubs and events uh, in the non-league landscape, uh, but that's really the perspective I try to take like a culture first perspective, you know, I don't think that I'm, I don't, I find it boring to report on scores. I think there's always a better story and I'd rather just be involved in that storytelling. And it was always for a number of years when I started Non-League America, I always had it in the back of my mind, like, oh, I, I wish I had this. I wish I was also doing scores, but also creating content, you know, but it's been really, um, use fancy words. It's been really, I've just been really happy to see the rise of protagonist, for example, because they've filled in the niche where I always felt like I was obligated to try and fill. But as a couple person enterprise, like we don't, we don't have the bandwidth to do it. 
and I didn't really have the desire to do it. Um, and that since they're filling that gap and others are filling that gap and we see like, it's only good to see the non-league media landscape proliferate and get much bigger. It's not like, oh, I feel like I need to have all this to myself. Like, because that's just not realistic, you know? We're not big enough to have everything to ourselves. I don't want to hoard information. I've always been in my work. I try to, you know, be a free exchanger of information and get information back. And to be honest, the non-league landscape is such a niche, tiny thing that at this point, it only a rising tide will only lift all boats. And there's not that many boats, and we need more, and we just need to keep it lifting. You know, when there's a hundred people out doing this, then maybe I'd be more aggressive about trying to like protect my little fiefdom. But for now, like we really need more media outlets, more platforms, American Period and the Blog protagonist, Midfield Press, you know, whoever's out there trying to do stuff all the, the local, regional, Angeltown Post. I mean, all these people, Magic City Soccer and Route One Soccer in Miami. Like, I love what everybody's doing. I love the energy. And I'm just really happy to see that kind of um, enthusiasm for the lower leagues continue to proliferate. If we don't have the conversations, nothing's going to change. So even just you and I getting together, you know, hanging out on a Sunday afternoon or some of the other conversations I've had with people across the country, whether it be in DMs or actually on Twitter, just the more conversations we're having, the more sunlight we're shining on, even if we don't agree on everything, that's fine. Nothing's going to change unless we talk about it. So what was your impression of what was going on at the AOMs, you know, compared to the last year's and the year before that? It, it wasn't just a talk of, hey, let's this is going on in this conference and we picked up a small team in, you know, South Texas or something. There were some pretty significant things going on. Um, did you hear anything? Did you get a temperature of the room? Yeah, I mean, well, all the owners are under, you know, non-disclosure agreements like they're they're tight lipped. I couldn't get even casual conversations with people that I know personally you know, there wasn't going to be any information. I wasn't going to be able to like pry out any nuggets from them, you know? Um, and I didn't try too hard because that wasn't my main focus, but I did, you know, try and get a little bit out of a couple people, but they were just like, Hey, uh, we, we, we really can't talk about it, you know? And I'll leave that to the people who claim to be journalists to, you know, break those stories. Like I said, I would claim to be a journalist, but, um, Overall, though, it's obvious that the Founders' Cup and the transition of a portion of NPSL to a professional model beginning this fall is really exciting for the league, and it's really ex- it seems to be really exciting for even the teams that are not involved yet in the professional Founders' Cup and the and the NPSL Pro or whatever it's going to be called as it unfolds over the second half of 2019 to 2020 and the full season in 2020. Um, I think, I just hope that there's some mechanism built in that's going to allow for promotion and relegation in the traditional NPSL short season teams and Founders Cup teams. And it doesn't have to be right away. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, it's all or nothing. Like, if they roll out a reasonable three-year transition plan or something that says, hey, 
you know, one team up, one team down even, you know, we just want to see what that path is going to look like and get that dialogue flowing. And I, it wasn't, and to my knowledge, I don't think a lot of the conversations were strictly off in like subcommittee. I think that there were, I don't know the specifics, but I know that there were conversations about the Founders Cup that spread league wide and, and that even the other teams had input um, into the discussion. So I would think that uh, could rationally assume that these issues are being talked about, you know. So I think that's a positive, and we'll just have to see how it's going to all play out. I got the impression going into it that there was definitely a subsect of, you know, if there's 100 teams across the country, there's definitely a subsect of maybe 20 clubs that were extremely worried that you had the Detroits, the Chattas, the Cosmos that were going to level up and kind of leave everybody else behind to fend for themselves. And so there was confusion. Um, are you guys going to play reserve teams during the summer? Are you completely abandoning us and taking the NPSL mantle with you and leaving us, dropping us kind of closer to the UPSL? Um, and from what I understand, most, if not all of those clubs that came in with those questions left the meetings feeling much better about things. They maybe didn't have complete um, consensus on everything and complete answers for everything, but they at least felt, well, my concerns were heard, they were understood, and I feel like we're moving in the right direction, which I think is just amazing and a great, great result of what sounded like a good weekend. Yeah, I mean, the level of the overall level of positivity around the event was off the charts. I mean, people were so positive. And it wasn't a fake positive, like, you know, glad handing and stuff. Like, it was, there was a real positive energy. Um, and so that dictated the entire experience for me. It was the greatest conference. I go to conferences for, I work in advertising, I go to conferences all the time. I've been to a couple other stock conferences, not as much, but. This was the most positive conference I've ever been to, just in terms of the willingness of people to engage, um, have deep conversations about the future of the sport. And um, I had a lot of great conversations one-on-one -on -one with various MPSL clubs, uh, and I learned so much. And it was so gratifying to meet a lot of people I've never met in person, but who I've been able to touch through Non-League America and you know get some positive feedback and all that. So. Let's pivot a little bit. You are a fan. You are a supporter of the Atlanta Silverbacks. Can you tell us a little bit how yeah. you started um, supporting them and what your, uh, I guess, experience has been as a fan of them? Because they are certainly one of the more, I hesitate to call them controversial because I don't think that's the right term, but it's definitely been a whirlwind probably for you as a fan of theirs and the different leagues that they've gone up and down through. Um, can you just speak to a little bit and, and are you comfortable with where they're at at the moment? So it's been a whirlwind. <laughs> I moved to Atlanta on, I arrived on Halloween uh, 2013. I moved to Atlanta from Massachusetts and uh you know, I knew about the Silverbacks. I had watched them on streams before and stuff like that. And, you know, being, I had already kind of launched the pre-Non-League America blog that Non-League America kind of grew out of. And so I was doing 
going to games and stuff like that, going to local games. Um, but I'd already been kind of a little bit soured on MLS and realized how uh, structurally negative it is for the growth of soccer in America. So I already come to my kind of op opening, eyes opening, you know what I mean, of the, the flaws in the system. But I, I, I started out as a, a New England Revolution supporter, you know, and I, uh, being from Massachusetts, and I didn't, I went to the Revs for like two years in like 2012 and 13. And um, I would go, but I just couldn't quite get on the same page with the fan base. And I just didn't quite, I made some good friends and, you know, my partner in Non-League America, Chris Reed, that's how I met him. Um, but it just, the whole feeling of going to the games at, at this empty Gillette is just like, a, it's kind of a soul crushing experience. Um, aside from the fact that MLS is keeping, you know, holding down the progression of the sport. Like if you just on face value, the MLS experience itself is so bad, like going to Gillette, but I've always been, you know, a driven by the belief that you're kind of born into your sports uh, affiliations and you don't have a lot of choice in the fact that you can choose things. And I didn't get, get that from like uh, hipster soccer, you know, the way that people talk about it, like English people, you're born into your club, but I didn't, it's deeper than that. I got that really from my grounding in Boston sports and growing up in Massachusetts because I can't, I, I don't think it's the same way everywhere, but in New England, our domestic sports are looked at the same way that English people look at their football clubs. Like when you, when you're from Massachusetts, you're a Red Sox fan, you're, you're a Patriots fan, you're a Bruins fan, you're a Celtics fan. That's what it is. So when I got caught the soccer bug, it was only natural that I was going to extend that to the Reds, but it was only through, and that's how I started. And I started going to the Revs, and I was a Revs fan. And but as I started to learn more about it, I just couldn't couldn't deal with it. You know, I couldn't justify giving money to Kraft, who's actively trying to sabotage the growth of the sport, and is at the top pulling strings along with Garber, who basically installed Garber. Gulati used to work for the Revs. Like it's it's that deep, you know. And that's why the the banner that I have that I've toted around the country for several years. The Illumigulati banner, you know, <laughs> is, is a reference to that. These are the, this is the unholy troika of, of people, you know, holding back the sport. So when I got to Atlanta, I knew I wanted to check out the Silverbacks. I actually bought a ticket to the game before the soccer bowl, but it was like a day after I arrived and I just couldn't justify it to like abandoning my wife for the whole day with like an unpacked apartment and <laughs> like going to the soccer like day two. So <laughs> I skipped that one and then I skipped the soccer bowl. I didn't go. So I started going to the Silverbacks on opening. So I had that whole off season to investigate the landscape. And I started going uh, on opening day 2014. And in the meantime, I had been through that winter. I'd been investigating all the other things going on in Atlanta. I had met with all the local Atlanta soccer people, and I had, you know, talked with the Terminus Legion, and and I had talked with, uh, you know, they had. I went to their initial launch party, like, and you could see it on my personal Instagram. Like, I took a picture of the 
organizers there, but they, and I was trying to ask them, like, why don't you guys support the Silverbacks? Like, this isn't coming until 2017. This is 2014. This is three years before. Like, this is not on the imminent horizon, you know? And and I have video recorded interviews with those people, and they're like, you know, well, we didn't really, we're just, they kind of fluctuated back and forth between just support all soccer and, well, we're not really interested in them or what they do. We're for MLS Atlanta. And in a lot of ways, I kind of wish they had stuck with word because their initial standpoint was we're just for MLS Atlanta. You know, that's fine. The Silverbacks can do what they're going to do because a lot of people can sit here and, and blame the ultras. And we definitely maybe, you know, we're not for everybody, but it's convenient excuse by a lot of people to just blame one tiny section of what was the fan base but the the problems with the silverbacks are systemic and they're much bigger than how you feel about one supporters group you know a lot of it comes back to boris and 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 the people were overpriced for parking and like there was some negative some significant negative perceptions about the silverbacks that were totally detached and larger than anybody's perceptions about the ultras and so that was already a groundwork that was was there. But I'm coming from the empty, empty, uh, you know, cavernous stilet, and I'm coming down to Silverbacks Park, and I'm seeing it packed, pretty much packed out. And you got this tiny little soccer-specific stadium that's named after the club, owned by the club, and technically that that gets, you know, we don't need to get into all the weeds of differences between the ownership of the club and the, the physical stadium and how that all leasing of the name and there's just a lot of bullshit you know but bottom line is they had this team they had a packed out little stadium they had a guys tailgate atmosphere you drive up there and the whole upper field would be all cars would be all filled up and you know i just had such a great time going there i was like this is what i've always always wanted and when i met the ultras you know they already people already had kind of like a some people had a negative reputation of them but to me these were my like these were the people that I've been looking for. These were my like spiritual home. When I met these guys, it just immediately, they were on the same page with me and kind of like providing the type of atmosphere that I was looking for and had the type of outlook on the world and had a strong like political viewpoint too, to a large extent. And it was just like everything that I was looking for was there. So I just grew into it and I didn't like, they, at the end of the game, they sing Atlanta till I die. You know what I mean? And I didn't sing that for like two years. Um, it came off as hollow to me because I didn't feel that way. But as I started living in the city and developing these relationships, like I, it has such a big part of me, Atlanta, that even though I'm, I moved away, I'm very open to going back and hope to go back in the not too distant future. I'm going to be going back to support anyway, like more than half the games, and I'll just hop on a plane but I'd like to move back but I just got a job opportunity that I couldn't refuse and just I got kids I had to do what was best for my family <laughs> so I, I kind of had this scheduled for a little later in the conversation but it just makes more sense to do it now talk to me about Atlanta United and what just happened in Atlanta and and how does that make you feel how does it make you feel to see this you know redux of the uh Georgia Dome being packed out with 70,000 people and you've got the Silverbacks up north who, when they make the playoffs, get shuffled off to a high school 
because what they've got ultimate frisbee or something going on on the mm-hmm. on the fields and they can't even play a home playoff game and and i'm not necessarily trying to throw anybody under the bus in terms of saying that but that disconnect of is atlanta a soccer town and if it is why why aren't the silverbacks benefiting from that okay so i want to start with that atlanta is absolutely a soccer town and no matter what side of the of the spectrum you fall on, whether you're an Atlanta United supporter, whether you're Silverbacks, whether you're Georgia Revolution, you know, whether you're Peachtree City MOBA, you know, whether you're uh, a player in the ADASL, whether you play, whether you're, you know, Hispanic player in the Liga Mag at Silverbacks Park whether you uh, in the Hispanic League over at um, uh, on the east side there at uh, I can't think of the name of it where we always used to we used to practice our rec team but there's another there's like three or four different Hispanic leagues highly competitive like unsanctioned like there's so much soccer in Atlanta that exists and which is a main reason why Atlanta United, on top of all their marketing and, and all their stuff, were able to succeed because there, there was all this energy. There always has been this energy. It just, there wasn't the right thing to bring it all together in a big tent to put it all under one roof. And, you know, just to be completely honest, that's what they've done. You know, they've been able to effectively reach all these disparate parts of the landscape. There's, you know, huge youth soccer, like, there's more eight feet. Atlanta, even before Atlanta United, Atlanta very much felt like more of a soccer town than anywhere that I've lived. And I've lived in like five or six places in my life. I think it's more of a soccer town than Boston. I think it's it's just obvious. It's it's just there. It's everywhere. And, and the so, fact that it exists coming from all these different angles just proves that, you know. So what was preventing the Silverbacks from seceding? I think ownership, uncommitted ownership, I think that's really, and then other things off from there. But I think, you know, it really comes back to Boris and like just a inability to work with other people and like um, anytime that people had good ideas, it just seems like just a consolidation of control and just uh, a need to money over everything. So even if rec leagues made more money over the team, there was, he's going to go with whatever makes the most money, just bottom line. So, you know, and this extended before Atlanta United existed, this goes back to the NASL version of the Silverbacks. I mean, you know, we all know in 2012, the Silverbacks sold their home U.S. Open Cup game away, uh, and that was. And I was still living in Massachusetts at that time, but everybody heard about that. That was like, what is that? And the and the fans were very upset, you know. And I've since gotten to know all these fans and stuff, but everybody was wondering about that. How could you sell away your home Open Cup game against the MLS team? And that's why in 2014, when the Open Cup run came. Everybody was so excited. I mean, that was like, that was unbelievable. That was probably the peak Silverbacks experience was the 2014 U.S. Open Cup run. 
and beating Salt Lake at home. And this was when all the fan bases were going to Silverbacks Park. Um, so we had a, it wasn't all the way packed out. You can see on the, on the video, it's not sold out, but it was a weekday, but there was still, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people on a weekday and, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 on the weekends. Um, and it was just a great team. All these guys who Poku and, um, you know, uh, Junior Burgos and and uh, all these guys have gone on to you know longer careers and bigger things were all there at that time when Naldo was coaching and there was just quite an energy going on there and to, then to, then to the big controversial win they had on the road in Colorado and we had a watch party there that year and we were watching that at at a, at a bar in um, our our local bar that that mainly we go to the elder tree in East Atlanta village and they had an outdoor uh, TV set up for us. And we were watching that them win with eight men in Colorado and then bring it back and have that close game against Chicago fire. And, you know, they, they were like on the cusp of going to the semifinals of the open cup. Um, and they, that it was a quarterfinal game. They lost to Chicago. So it was just an amazing experience. And then coming back off of that, not thinking that they would come back, and then that was when the Save Our Silverbacks movement came during that offseason between 14 and 15. And that was like, um, you know, a brief time when all the factions of the fan base kind of united together to try and keep the Silverbacks going. But it always felt like, you know, the other portion of the fan base was always one foot in, one foot out, always waiting for some, for, you know, United to get here. And, you know, there was a section of the fan base that I represent that was just, this is a club. This is our club. This is what it's going to be. And we should do the most to just absolutely, you know, support this club. And that if we really want to rally for an open system, well, a consequence of having an open system is meaning there's going to be multiple clubs in every city. So you just have to stick with one and... You know, some people say you don't have to stick with one, but I believe you got to stick with one. You can only really feel, you only have enough passion in your body, in your existence to put it to like one team at a time per sport. <laughs> at least I do. I just can't dilute it with trying to say, yay, soccer. And I love to cover soccer, you know, and I do, I do non-league America. I watch all these games. I watch multiple games a week, but I don't claim to support all these other teams. I only support one. And my emotion only goes to the silverback. Fast forward, at this time, I've invested three years into silverbacks by the time Atlanta United kicked the ball. So even if I'm not happy with Boris or the way the club is run and all the stuff going on, I'm just committed. And that's what it's going to be. And you have to kind of take those lumps. It's like watching a losing season, you know? You have to, you're stuck with that team. You just got to gut it out and watch the losing seasons. I watch a lot of losing Red Sox seasons, you know. I grew up with some <laughs> terrible Red Sox teams. You're talking about the, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s, and, and there was a lot of trash, you know, but that's what it was. There was never an option. It was never like, oh, I'm going to cheer for the Yankees, you know. Become <laughs> an Expos fan. No, I, I completely agree. It frustrates me so much, especially in the lower leagues, I think it's one thing if you 
I, I think it's ridiculous Ooh. if you live in Los Angeles and you claim to be a fan of the Galaxy in LAFC. Like, that just doesn't... You can't be a Lakers and a Clippers. You can't be a Mets and a Yankees fan. That's weird unto itself. But especially in the lower leagues where every cent matters. You know, every cent that a team can make when it comes to concessions, parking, merch especially... If you start to split what you're committing into a pot, that you're not doing anybody any benefit. And so these few people in Chattanooga that think they can sport both teams, but especially, in my opinion, these guys in Greenville that think they're going to be able to split money between the NPSL team and the uh, USL D3 team, I don't think it, it's going to work, nor do I think they're helping anybody. Because just like in Asheville, I'm not going around buying... Um, such and such merch and such and such merch. If I want to buy merch, I buy an extra Asheville t-shirt. I, I buy a kit for somebody else as a present. I buy, I've got like five water bottles. I don't even use them, but that was 50 bucks that I've put in the coffers that theoretically help them create the women's team or helps them arrange a friendly down the line, a new line of merch. Everything I'm doing is going into this one bucket trying to make that bucket better. I'm not spreading it out. Yeah. I'm not diluting anything. So I completely understand where you're coming from. And I do think the Yeah, and it doesn't have to, and to your point, that's a great point that you just made because it doesn't have to be with, you know, our, our support tends to have a lot of animosity. You know what I mean? Let's just be real. But only supporting one team doesn't have to be aggressive. In our case, it's kind of aggressively talking about the other team but it doesn't have to be it, you could be a narrow-minded focus just on your team you could be i don't know what they're doing over there you know i'm not whatever i'm not going to say anything negative either but you can only do so much and you gotta i think they're going to really find that out to your you made the point in greenville because chattanooga knows what it is and those chattanooga people are not aggressive they're not trying to you know they're not ultras they're not trying to be there's nothing of that type in, but they get it, the fact that you have to be for your club and you really can only put that amount of passion into one club only. And I think that Greenville is in for a rude awakening, but I think that it will sort itself out, I hope. But, you know, it's it's got to be that way. But the, the only way that the NPSL and the independent branch of this is going to have a leg to stand on is if we can get full-length seasons um, for these clubs. Do you think Atlanta, that's has any, Atlanta have any future in the NPSL Pro? I mean, they don't have the money, you no. know? It's the only way they're, they just don't have the money for that. The only way that that's going to happen is if they enter into an, a pro-rel agreement with the current NPSL structure and they play their way in at some point in the future. But for now, they're, they're not going to buy their way into NPSL Pro. I understand Asheville, though, has some sites set on going. I think so. Um, it makes a lot of sense. We we obviously get good crowds. Um, I would imagine we, we gained about, I think, another 200 this year. I would imagine we'll gain another 200 going into next season. That'll put us at about an average of 2,000 a year, or 2,000 a game, I mean. And more importantly, I think the proof is in the proverbial pudding because we introduced the women, and it's not like the women are getting 750 people out there. So this idea of 
uh, you know, can, will fans come to a full length season? Well, last year, the men played seven home games, one friendly, and we had a friendly that was canceled weather-wise because it just rains all the time. And the women played seven home games. And the women averaged 1,600 people. And they were playing on, like, Thursdays. They were playing on Friday nights. They didn't have those prime time, like, Tuesday and Saturday games. So that right there is more than even a full season than what um, D3 is going to play. So, yes, Asheville can do it. Now, that said, Memorial is going to go under renovations here pretty soon. So I can't imagine we're going to do anything while that's being dug up and rebuilt when that reopens, maybe 5,000 seats. I would love to see a new stadium, new league. I think a lot could be done. Memorial is being right. No, we'll, we'll play there this year. And at the end of this season, it, it's going to be, I think it was a $5 million bond that got voted on two years ago, maybe a year ago, to completely redo that. Um, it is a, the city owns it. It is multi-purposed. There's also Ultimate Frisbee, Rugby, I think think there's like a minor league football team that plays i don't even know when they play um they use it for the beer city cup they had a concert there it was the first time they've used it for a concert in like decades so it's never going to be a soccer specific but we're the only thing actually selling it out there's rumors they're going to try to put a track around it i hope to god they don't do that i don't think there's enough room to do that i would like to see the uh, stands just rebuilt the ones that run the length of the pitch but that supporter section on the other side that's i don't know what is that thing maybe like 15 yards wide 20 yards wide and then it goes up like 60 or 16 rows or something like that i'd like to see that shortened Mm -hmm. You know, kind of look more like what Detroit has going on at Keyworth, like only have it go back maybe like seven rows and have it extend out a little bit more. I think that would be a better visual. So, Stephen, tell us a little bit about um, what Non-League America does with your documentaries. And can you talk a little bit about the one you did on Providence City? I just recently rewatched that again. And I'm just blown away. I I know a little bit about what Jason's doing up there, but it just absolutely blows my mind the way you were able to capture not just what Jason's doing with the team, but the fact that he's turned this little, I, I mean, it's just about a Sunday league team that's moved up, but has turned into this merch giant. I would imagine people on the West coast know about them and, and, the Providence City. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yeah. this. So, you know, my interest in this really goes back to the founding of Non-League America. You know, when we were just a blog called Deep in the Pyramid, the and I was trying to find out where these non-league games were, my initial forays were into the BSSL. Like, the first non-league game that I attended, which was like the third game I ever went to, was uh, a BSSL game in like 2012, you know? So I knew about the team um, and I knew about its ancestor team, East Providence Sports. And we went and watched them. Um, the, like one of the best videos from the early proto days of Non-League America was this uh, video that I made of watching the U.S. Open Cup local qualifying tournament. They used to have it regionalized the way they have the Amateur Cup now instead of um, a national where where 
everything's posted on the cup.us website and the US Open Cup, and they have the, the full slate of the fall qualifying round. It used to be just kind of localized by state. And so there was an internal Massachusetts tournament that, to get in, out into the Region 1 tournament. And um, I went to the final of that and organized like the first tailgate for non-league at the end of the 2012 season. Um, and I've been to like 30 games and I've been going to like PDL games and like these local games in the in the BSSL. And at that time, East Providence Sports was playing in the Lusa League, which is the Portuguese league that he refers to in the in the doc in the documentary. Um, and they played uh, GPS Omens, which at the time was called MPS Premier Soccer, and they're a pretty regular opening round participant in the U.S. Open Cup coming out of the Massachusetts area. Um, either them or one of the other BSSL teams usually makes it in. So they played that that final, that game, and I saw them. So they were kind of on my radar. But So then I connected those dots a few years later when they started coming out on social media as Providence City and joined the BSSL and were doing all this design stuff. So that BSSL connection is really strong with me and one that nurtured non-league America when we were nothing. Um, and I got a lot of positive support. Nobody had, had been out and was like videotaping those games. And so um, I thought it was so cool that they could be the ones. I've always been looking to crack this code, like who's going to be the ones to bring a supporter culture to the BSSL or to these other local city leagues, the Cosmopolitan League in New York, you know, um, these the larger leagues that are around, Liga NorCal in California and stuff like that. So a lot of high quality play, but not necessarily the supporter culture. Um, and Providence City seems like they were the first team that was really making an effort to attract fans to come out and watch them. So I wanted to document it. And I had already gotten the um, everything in place by developing a partnership with Jamisa Johnson, Peace Living Films out of Delaware. We collaborated on the Bear Fight FC documentary and uh, you know, explained in other places how that came about. My interest in, in a culture podcast that she co-hosts that's really popular, got nothing to do with soccer, that just happens to be in Delaware. Um, and I, because we were in Delaware and I knew that she was a videographer and had a background in making hip hop videos and stuff like that, I just was able to make those connections that first time, what could have just been a one-off project, but it came out so well and was so positively received, and it was what I was looking for in non-league America, professional quality editing um, to take me out of doing iMovie trash and like leaving swears and, and music over and stuff like that. The early ones were a good proof of concept, <laughs> but I wanted more, right? So we were able to put together this and this documentary, when it became clear that Providence City was going to be playing these higher profile friendlies with NPSL clubs, and it was just, they'd already won the, the their third division in the previous year, they'd already won the supporter sword, which got the, the attention of the soccer Twitter community. So trying to bring all those things together and see what does this, people don't really know who they are, they just know the Twitter presence. Um, and they were able to accomplish so much through Twitter, but I wanted to show what's this like in real life. So that's what we did. We went out and, and embedded with them for a whole month and shot five different games with them over the month of June and, um, you know, put the documentary out and it's been pretty well received.
Yeah, and and all of that's absolutely well do. I love the interview with Crowley, especially. I think he he brings such an interesting con or uh, perspective to things, and I love that he was able to see in Providence City the same things that inspired him to kind of create Stockade. Uh, just props to you, man. Well, Steven, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I hope to touch base uh, maybe with you throughout the course of this year. Uh, maybe once the season kicks off, uh, maybe I'll buy you a beer at the uh, <laughs> next Atlanta Asheville game. Yeah, let me just say this uh, in parting. It's, I really, I don't have to like everything that Asheville does, but existentially, I support Asheville's right to do your thing your way and that's what independent soccer is all about it's about people individual clubs right to know what's best for you what's best for your community and the Asheville city has become so successful because your local people tapped into your local scene and bringing that to bear through soccer and um what USL and some and MLS and what they want to do is homogenize everything to the point where there's no local flavor and it's this kind of just milk toast product, which is the same thing everywhere. And when you try to be the same, I know from working in marketing, when you try to be the same thing to everybody, you end up being nothing. You have to position yourself. You have to be willing to plant a flag somewhere. And, you know, it could be argued that the, the Silverbacks, well, not the Silverbacks, well, here's what's going on with Silverbacks. I don't mean to, to like this too much, but the fundamental problem to our earlier point about the Silverbacks is that they've always tried to be everything to everybody. They've been, from a club perspective, they've been afraid to plant a flag. And from the supporters' perspective, the ultras, we've planted a very firm flag. and But that might not be for everybody. But the ultras aren't the club. The club is still the club. If you could want to, we, I invite everybody to be a fan of the Silverbacks. You don't have to be part of the ultras to be a fan of the Silverbacks. You can sit on the absolute other side of the stadium and support them. But Asheville has planted a flag and said, this is who we are, this is what we're about, this is our community, and that's why you're successful. You know, Chattanooga, this is who we are, this is what we're about, this is our community. That's why they're successful. If clubs want to be successful and be an alternative, then you have to be willing to position yourself in a distinct way. Absolutely. I couldn't have said that better myself. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Stephen. All right. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the You're Smarter Than Us podcast, a proud member of the Soccer and Sweet Tea Network. Check us out on social media at your underscore smarter or shoot us an email at you're smarter than us at gmail.com.